So you notice I have the Braves hat on today because we're talking Georgia. Love it. It's appropriate. Cyrus Garrett, which I didn't know your first name is actually William. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's my government name. And I like to uh, confuse people by putting it down every once in a while instead of okay. Cyrus. So Cyrus Garrett is a senior VP of partnerships at Task Force. But more straightforwardly, he's a longtime Democratic seasoned Democratic operative who worked for Joe Biden and Barack Obama. And I got back in touch with you during the 2020 presidential race and then the 2021 runoffs when you were mainly focused on Georgia. And I found you to be very prescient on what was happening there on the ground, especially in the runoffs. I remember going back and forth with you when Ossoff was behind and I thought he wasn't going to make it. And you told me, you're like, there's going to be just enough votes for him to make it over the finish line. And that obviously was the majority maker for Democrats. So that's why I wanted to have Cyrus back. Now, Georgia, obviously another political hotspot with two big statewide races. But first, I want to go like 100,000 feet from your experience in 2020 and 2021. What was the biggest takeaway you had from working in that state in the last cycle? Oh, wow. Uh, party investment matters. Um, so I think the difference between Georgia, when I was looking at it compared to other states, uh, especially like Florida and North Carolina, was the party investment that had been made in field and community engagement, that the networks that were needed to reach um, you know, sporadic voters had been made and connected. And a lot of that energy was in the center. Nakima Williams did a great job making sure that they brought those organizations into the center of the strategy, um, made sure they were part of the resources that came in, um, and then really just focused on the wired nature. I remember going there for the Democratic debate um, in the primary. And uh, I remember being there and just feeling the energy of how wired that place was. And that just stuck with me. So as I put together a team down there, I wanted to put together people that actually ran that state for Hillary because people don't remember, but they had made a really, really significant push in that state, um, even though she fell short. Um, and that team had largely stayed in place and knew, uh, I think the math, all these states come down to math, right? And there's a math of Georgia that you can't lose the outside of Atlanta areas uh, by more than two to one, right? Mm -hmm. You can keep your losses down to two to one. You have a shot for Atlanta and then some of the other uh, urban areas to overtake that vote. Um, and so they knew that they executed on that. And the reasons I was so confident about the count was we had we had an advantage of surprise. And by the time Republicans mobilized, very much of like the part of flipping Indiana in 2008, uh, when I was a part of that team, by the time they realized they were in trouble and started sending Sarah Palin in, it was too late. We had already had the momentum and there was no stopping it. And it was the same feeling in Georgia. I would see them roll in and out of the state, their, their media, which told me they don't believe these polls because we we're up by two some days, we we're up by three some days. And I said, they don't believe these polls. They would never pull their media out of the state, a must-have state, to go spend more money in Florida where they already have it locked down. Um, and you so think with those field things, was the field was the key. I mean, I, I know operators absolutely. usually say like field is one or two points, but in this instance, that was it. One or two it's points was it. Yep. And the difference in 
the investments that have been made and the moves that have been made by activists and local folks in Georgia to make it more uh, more likely to get the vote turned out there than even in North Carolina. I still am haunted by the 70,000 votes we lost to there because it's structural there, right? They've locked down those campuses so tight that it's hard to get those votes and those votes exist on those campuses. And Georgia is completely the other way around. You're registered. Um, it's easy to uh, follow your ballot and all these different things. So it was a way we could put a strategy in place to carry folks through. Whereas in North Carolina, the best strategy we had still had only 70% efficacy in terms of the witness signing of those absentee ballots. So how, what is your confidence level a month out regarding Georgia now compared to where it was four weeks before the runoff or four weeks before the general with, with Biden? I am. I'm at a 50-50, right? It's a it's a it's a toss up, mainly because there is no element of surprise this time. They fortified themselves down there. They've changed some things that were advantageous to us in 2020. Um, and there there is a great candidate at the top of the ticket, but the fact that he's running against a candidate is so flawed, and I have not seen as much drop off from that candidate as those flaws show up, means that this is going to head to a runoff. So a lot of this right. is going to be, can you hold the energy, momentum, and attention through to a final vote um, and having to vote this twice? I think that is right. going to be the tell. It's not going to be over. So we're not going to know this. This is a great point. We're not going to know the Senate majority in early November. Right. Because this Georgia Senate race is going to be a go another four weeks. At the, yep. It's at the end of November, correct? Yep. I agree. I think that's the most likely scenario right now. Um, more so than a blowout by Herschel or some last minute momentum in the state. There's not enough. Uh, I think, you know, the problem with Wisconsin is that it's 75% rural <laughs> around Milwaukee, right? Versus um, Georgia, where you have much more broad suburbs and ex-urban areas before you get to some of the more rural areas. So I think that the, the math works for Warnock um, and he's got to make this about the, uh, the decency and his understanding of where all Georgians are in this moment. I think as a pastor, he brings that element to the race naturally, but the class issue, and you already see Herschel setting it up, right? I'm not so smart. I'm not that smart of a man. He's a very educated, well, like lower expectations in that way yeah. is a potential trap that the Warnock folks have to watch. You thought that was smart of, of, of the, the one smart thing he's done is lower those expectations. Lower those expectations and give Democrats fodder to step in and point fingers at the not so smart man, because that's how people look at the Democratic Party already, is that we're pointing down at folks right. who think we know better. And it's a narrative that in a state like Georgia may carry. Right. Um, I do think that the swing vote, though, is the black male vote, the black male independent vote in that state. I think there is still an opportunity to highlight to those individuals that the most qualified candidate was not selected for the Republican side um, and that there's much more qualified black male conservatives in the state of Georgia and Herschel Walker to be that candidate. Um, and I think that's going to have resonance. So explain to me why the black male vote is the swing vote. Is it the same as the as the white male vote and that they're more inclined to look at Republicans just because of masculinity and and inherent, I don't know, genetics uh, that make it 
make it tougher for them to vote for sort of the mommy party, the Democratic Party, or is there something different going on? I think it's a number of different things uh, confluencing. One, I think there has been a concerted effort on the right um, to target dissatisfaction, especially amongst Black men around issues of LGBTQ, IA, um, identity, around roles of men in society, the, the Me Too movement, all these things, you know, the treatment of Bill Cosby, all these things have been used and weaponized, especially for a certain part of uh, the community. Um, and then there was already a distrust there of the Democratic Party not producing outcomes, especially around economic issues that African-American men cared most about, which is not, can I get a welfare check? But can I actually get access to capital for my idea? I have the right education for the opportunities around me. Um, and the Democratic Party hasn't done a good job of messaging those things out. Um, the other part is in the South, I think the Republicans have been smart in places they've been in the governorship of spreading around government contracts to a place of simple satisfaction. The reason I think you see Kemp where he is is because Kemp deals with Black Democrats, male female in between, and they have contracts. And so it's a lot different than making a decision about who I want to represent me in the U.S. Senate versus um, my current situation in the state as is um, to a number of these folks that, you know, the black male vote is very independent in Georgia, right? And you have a lot of former military folks that ideologically probably tend to be more uh, socially conservative than not, but economically, are still looking for um, those ladders up and those opportunities uh, to have capital um, pushed to them. So I think right now, Kemp is in a better position just because of the, the, the trappings of being uh, the incumbent governor and the things he's been able to do. And even the, some of the, the moves he's made up uh, through the primary in Georgia was around solidifying himself for the general. Is the governor's race cooked? Oh, uh, I'll get killed if I say yes, but I, the problem I feel like is that um, Stacey Abrams had a period of time to reintroduce herself to elements in the state that were being told a different narrative about her. Um, it's funny because we we're just talking about Iowa and how Iowa is so different now than when Barack Obama won. And I wouldn't say it is. I actually just say that we spent almost 80 something you know percent of our time there for uh, for the first year in Iowa all the counties meeting all the people so then when people come in and tell you something about this guy that you've met it's a lot harder the problem I have I think in or the problem Stacy has in Georgia is how much has she been outside of the main metro areas and, and done some of these these meetings and union halls and gotten those people to see that she understands their issues right and how much of that has been um, communicated beyond just the event that is happening. And, and that's where you're seeing a lot of the messes. Um, Warnock's message is really around, I understand where you're at now, and I understand your pain and your frustration. Not even a whole big litany of stuff that we can do for you, but the understanding and the seeing of people in this moment has been missing, I think, from a lot of the Abrams messaging. It's more, I can come in and fix this for you, and I don't think people believe that of government at this moment. So it's more about showing an, a message of empathy and an understanding than saying, I'm going to solve it. Yes, Abrams. it's about dressing people's feelings. Think about everything around us right now. Our phones, the TV, all the algorithms are based to our feelings. Why? Because that's how we make a large majority of our decisions. Voting is a feeling. It's a feeling more so than it is a mental uh, 
uh, calculus. That's why people vote red or blue, no matter what the issues are, is because they feel a part of that team. Um, and so I think a lot of what has happened is people don't feel, and this is African-American men, why there's a delta between her and Warnock, some of the polls, they, those men don't see uh, seen and heard by uh, Stacey Abrams, or they don't under they don't believe that she can address the issues and concerns that maybe they have. Is it um, all that, or is it some inherent sexism? Because it's fascinating. Oh, that's Warnock, part of it too. Warnock performed so well in his first race there, and you know, obviously was a pastor and had a portfolio, but Abrams was was pretty well known. You know, came very close to Kemp and in 2018, remained on the national scene. Uh, maybe that was part of the problem. I mean, a woman showing too much ambition is how much I, I of it is, is that, that, that yeah. it's just that she's a woman and it's tougher for a woman to make this argument, a black woman than a black male. It's, it's a large part of it. Right. But I always say that the rules of the game are the rules of the game. So you know what you have to accomplish. Now, can you do it? Sure. Right. Can yep. you accomplish the feat about actually making people see you as more than just a woman candidate for the state of Georgia, but actually in your candidacy being historic? These are always the frames I try to tell people to stay away from, because what does your history have to do with me and my needs right now? Right. Um, and I think a lot of what is still a possibility. So I don't want to say it's cooked. Right. I think there's opportunities moving forward and, um, for them to continue to do this. But she, even in you watching the debate, how Kemp managed and dealt with um, the charges that she leveled against them, it was always like, oh, there you go again. Here's this, this uh, sort of lecturing, oh, just lecturing me on these sorts of things. And as much as we hated it, it plays. It plays, right? Um, and I, I think that's something that they need to address um, by having other folks and other voices and other validators um, that are akin to these communities come out and, and stand behind her. The more military generals and the more um, police officer union you know, folks that she can get to stand behind her, I think all that helps um, uh, in, in burnishing her image as somebody who can reach out to different groups and cares about what each group has to say in the conversation. So the black vote in Georgia, I was looking at the stats. Incredible to me that it was actually higher in 2018. It made up 29% of the electorate and then dropped to 27% of the electorate in 2020 for the general and then bumped up and back a point to 28% for the runoff. So you actually had higher black turnout for the so-called off-year down ballot than Trump versus Biden. You want to know I, why? Yes, I do. There was checks on the ballot. It was direct payment. There was a direct benefit for voting for those two senators in that election. I was going to receive a stimulus check for my efforts. And that is a transactional relationship that I don't think the Democratic Party has even made in their minds yet, is that we offered something that was tangible for a vote. And guess what? People voted for us because there was something tangible on the other end of that. Yeah. And we delivered that. So and smart. instead of coming back and talking about how we delivered what we said last time, so the things we want to do moving forward, they can believe we've just kind of let the other side define what this, uh, a lot of the parts of this campaign are, even around things like crime. The basis of our crime explosion, you can directly trace back to the, the, the lapse of supports um, and resources during the middle of the, the pandemic. And a lot of the stuff that's gone away now 
has exposed that a lot of people are still hurting and still off. So as long as that remains, crime is going to remain. Um, and we know these things on the Democratic side, but we and we we put things in place before to solve them. But we never come back out and, and deliver to people why we know these things work and where they're working currently. Um, and that and that's a, a, a big part of our economic message that's missing right now is that if I am an individual independent woman living in rural ex-urban America, yes, I care about Roe and yes, I care about democracy. But do I care about those things more than the fact that I am barely making it by on the current economic policies that I don't even understand that you're pushing right now? You know, you know it's interesting you mentioned Roe. I am on every Democratic senator's press list and there everyone, almost everyone is hammering abortion, yeah. passing Cortez Mass. You know who I don't see it from? Warnock. I sir, yeah. there. He never talks about Roe. It's all jobs. It's all about you know, Medicare payments. It's all about healthcare costs. It's very bread and butter. Why isn't Warnock jumping on the abortion bandwagon? You split the black church. Why would you split your base down there like that and, and make that a contentious issue, right? Where people fall on that, um, I think is a personal decision. And I think he's left it at that conversation, right? Um, and I also think he recognizes the midterms are economic elections. Right. They're about understanding where people are and where they want to go and what has been done and, and meeting that frustration with uh, with showing up and, and being present. Um, so, yeah, I think I think the biggest thing right now is this pyrite for Democrats to believe that uh, Roe is going to be determinative because of what happened in Kansas, because in Kansas, there was only one thing on the ballot. In, in 2022, the economy is also going to be on the ballot. And every poll you look at, it remains stubbornly at the top of people's list of yeah. issues that they care about. It's so obvious, yet do you think it's foolish that Democrats are going so far in on abortion just as a whole, as, as their lifeline, it seems like? I mean, Republicans say they really don't want to talk about the economy because it leads them to the inflation numbers that are tough to defend. So abortion's their best card because their base was depressed this summer. They got the ruling and now they can hammer this just to get their base. But but do you think it's foolish going depending too heavily on outrage over abortion? Yes, because there's not enough. There is enough there but it's not enough there to carry through an election like this right there's too many other things on the ballot um and democrats narrowing it down to this like i said how does abortion politics impact the black male independent voter in georgia right now that's why warnock's not talking about it right he understands what the different parts of the coalition are that he needs and i think every state's looking differently right i think this bodes really well for some candidates more than others but i also think that it it by itself, not being connected to other issues, doesn't address where people are. And I always say the problem we have as Democrats is that we put together platforms and agendas that don't include where people want us to start, right? And I remember this so famously about Obamacare. Wasn't that Obamacare and healthcare weren't an important thing? It's just not where people were at that time. And so for us to spend two years outside of where people wanted us to spend the time, is which is why we got our clocks clean in 2010, and so my my warning to Democrats who are campaigning on these issues is don't lose sight of the bread and butter economic issues and how you're relating those things and even take some piss out of the Republicans. I mean, their whole campaign platform is that we're going to solve inflation by squelching immigration. 
Now, I don't know if any economists are out there, but that is completely fucking ridiculous. Or excuse my language, but uh, it's completely <laughs> you can ridiculous. You say it's podcast. <laughs> oh, love it. Um, but we don't take any of um, any umbrage with the with the inconsistencies and the crazy things that they say about what they want to do. And then we put everything on the idea that by, you know, holding this banner of row, that people get how the connections between that and Brown and all these other things that are going to be on the Supreme Court's agenda for next time around. Right. Why do you need to keep a Democratic majority? Because you need a bulwark against that Supreme Court that you hate so much. And we're not doing that sort of connected message. Are you confident that the Warnock campaign and the Democratic apparatus are running the right contrast with Walker. And I know that's a complex question because there are different pieces to this. I know the Senate majority pack, which I think is now the most experienced folks, you know, mm-hmm. uh, given given just who's there and, you know, J.B. Porsche has been there like they've yeah. been through many, many, many cycles while some of the other people are in newer. They're focusing. I mean, I, their ads are brutal. They're running these ads basically saying Walker threatened to kill his ex-wife and her comments just kind of making him seem scary and and totally unfit is that the right message or is it another message is warnock hammering the right message the right contrast um so warnock i think needs to steer clear of any contrast beyond being qualified for the job and capable and having delivered on what he said he would do right i i think he any mud that gets splashed on him diminishes him because you know he's way up in the likability. I do think focusing, trying to create Walker into a monster and then having him present as this affable, haw shucks, you know, um, genteel individual creates that mismatch in cognitive dissonance in people's minds that I don't know how impactful that's going to be to somebody mm. who's on the fence about him, right? Um, but I do think that prosecuting a narrative around how this person is not qualified for the job and is only being put there as another cog in the wheel of Republican dominance so they can change the courts and do all these other things is a stronger narrative because one, it has the uh, advent of being true. And two, then it aligns with what people are seeing on their screens, that Republicans are just in naked power grabs across the board And that's concerning to folks. It's the reason we're seeing threats to democracy rise. You know, it's it's a a complicated issue because threats to democracy, if you break it down, there's 50% that believe the last election was stolen and like 50% that believe it's under threat from the current uh, Republican activities. The the thing is the 50% were already going to vote Republican. The other is mixed with a lot of independents and swingers. And that's where we've seen the, the conversation swing back to us. But it can easily swing back to them if we don't come up with an economic message and reason for keeping the majority, that is beyond just, aren't you upset about Roe? I was looking at a stat that also fascinated me from the 2018 race, Abrams race, that she won 94% of the black vote and still lost. I've seen some polls showing her only in the eighties right now. And then there's the top line where she's down seven points consistently. It's like every poll, it's seven points. I don't know if you have any intel that that's wrong or if she's closer, but my bigger question is, can Warnock survive if she loses by six to seven points? Um, 
So the one thing that we've seen go away a lot is ticket splitting, but I think Georgia is a ticket splitting state, right? Like we, I think we saw some of that in, in, in previous uh, elections. Um, I think you'll see some of it now. I think you'll see a, a number of people that will vote for Warnock over Walker that will then turn around and vote for Kemp over Abrams. Who are those people? How, is that the suburban women? Is that black yeah, males? A, is that it's both? I think it's a mixture. I think it's a mixture of both. And I also think that there is, um, um, yeah, I think it's just a mixture of both because there's going to be a number of folks who are locally, like I said, more comfortable with a Republican governor, right? Um, concerned about critical race theory, you know, things like that, that we're not factoring in, right? We're not factoring in how much the concern about my kids' education and what they're learning in school uh, matters to an uh, independent woman. If both of those were on the ballot in Kansas, I think banning CRT would also pass with a fairly high clip as well, right? And we forget that um, internal calculus, I think, um, at our own peril. Um, so I do think that, um, but the one thing we've seen with independent women is that decency matters. So the fact that all of our candidates are leading pretty substantially um, in terms of likability, I think is a plus going into this cycle. Um, the thing Georgia has that other states don't have is that their state party has been more functional and has been more effective, I think, than a lot of other state parties up into the state. So if you were to say, um, you got to pick one, Nevada or Georgia to go, right? I would select Georgia to stay and hold really? over Nevada because I'm concerned about the internal workings of whether or not the execution can be there because there's just been atrophy, right? Because the ne um, Nevada is having problems internally with their party. There's, there's just, it's not a, there's not a, there is internal inconsistency and in understanding of the execution of the strategy. So just saying that in a 50-50 race, that's the sort of stuff that gets you beat, right? It's like jumping off sides if you're on offense. You're not, you're not able to execute and, and go down the field in the way that you, you normally would. And so that's just happened naturally. So Democrats, you believe, are more, Warnock is more likely to, to hold Georgia than Cortez Masto is Nevada. Yeah, because I think the there is no underlying local issue that catches up um, Warnock, like Cortez Mastro, who is dealing with some of the leftovers from COVID politics, right? Um, and how that impacted people economically during that time period and having the D next to her name with that still being a lingering factor. Now, in a race like that, having a strong field program, having a, you know a, a internal networks, having those unions, I'll be on board with you is usually enough in a state like Nevada to take you over. The problem has been is that the union is not 100 percent Democrat anymore in, in the state. Right. There's there's been inroads made into unions all across the country by conservatives. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think you need both conservatives and Democrats in, but it's not as reliable as a uh, block as it used to be Um after COVID, post -COVID, so Warnock has a more consolidated base, is what you're saying than, yes. than Cortez. More Mastro. consolidated, more, um, and like I said, not being driven by internal local issues, right? Like in terms of things that were outside of Warnock's control, they're judging Warnock based on his performance and what was delivered. That was Cyrus Garrett, who helped lead the Democratic operation in Georgia. The last time around, somebody I got to know pretty well last cycle, one of those sources that 
was so helpful behind the scenes. And I didn't know if he'd want to go on the record or do a podcast like this, but I gave it a shot. He said, sure, I work for myself. He's a senior VP of partnerships at Task Force. But more importantly to you, he's just been in all these states, uh, on the ground, in the, in the real important states, Georgia, Nevada, Wisconsin. He knows them, and he is straightforward. I think, as you can tell, he's not a bullshit artist. He, he levels with you, and he was the first person to tell me that John Ossoff was going to win that runoff when I didn't think he was going to win, and I don't think a lot of people did. He was behind that whole night, and Cyrus was the guy saying, nope, there's enough votes. He's just going to make it. Anyway, if you like that pod, toss me some stars. Toss the Too Close to Call podcast. Some stars on the Spotify. I think it's stars on Apple Pods as well. Good ratings, five-star ratings. That helps us climb up the podcast tables so we get the name out there. I would appreciate that. If you're listening on the Substack, give it a share. That would be nice for Uncle Dave. And here's my fastball pitch. Now is the time to become a paid subscriber because I'm going to do a bonus episode, a little bonus piece with Cyrus as he dives into some races beyond Georgia. Georgia is his focus, but he's got his hands in Wisconsin, in Nevada. He knows a lot about Pennsylvania. Really interesting insights. So now is the time to subscribe to Too Close to Call, and you get that extra pod with Cyrus and all the goodies he talks about beyond Georgia. That'll be coming next, so subscribe now. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all the paid subscribers already. I'm David Katniss. This is Too Close to Call, and good night.